Hey, hey, everyone back again. All right, part five here. At least episode five for us. We're going to be covering chapters five and six from part one from Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. Before jumping into it, go watch all the other episodes. What are you doing here if you haven't already? Uh, obviously, you're going to get a whole lot more out of this. Wait, not loud enough. I bet this isn't loud enough for you. That is probably better. Okay, so uh, yeah, before jumping into it, yeah, go listen to other episodes. If you haven't already, go follow me on other things like Instagram and TikTok. That'll be fun. And then we can we can all learn more. You can comment on things there as well. Uh, if you found this on YouTube, you can find it as a, you can find it as a podcast. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube. If you want to also see sometimes when I release videos, which is cool. Yeah. Let's just jump right into this with chapter five from part one titled Being in as such. So last time we would have just established what it means to be in or being in in terms of being in the world. So, so far we haven't really gotten into the weeds of the phenomenological structure and alliance of Dasein and the world. We know that Dasein is the concern with being or being concerned with being, but it can also be understood as the their being, kind of the they being in the world. So we've acknowledged that Dasein is a being with, but we've also maintained the existence of some separation between an observer and an observed. To some extent, I'm, I'm being reductive here. Now this is true even if we, uh, even when we speak of de-distancing, we are our own individual Daseins that are in contact with other ones. So we acknowledge some degree of separation, even if, as Heidegger says, world building means de-distancing, shrinking things down. So we must now recognize that to be in the world is to be there, like to be there. In revealing and de-distancing, Dasein is there for itself together with the there being of the world, with the Dasein of the world. So Dasein brings its there along with it. Dasein is born into a world and conditions that world and is then conditioned by that world. So he identifies two ways that being in is, is an act of being there through what he calls attunement and understanding, which are super important terms here. And as we've already established, at least in terms of understanding, Dasein naturally understands certain things about the world. It must, otherwise it wouldn't be able to actually enter the world with care in mind, to be able to adapt to that world, to adopt language, to adopt culture, to adopt history. So we will proceed here in two parts, kind of, just in this chapter. The first part will look at the existential constitution of the the there. What does that mean, the there? It will consider how their being is attunement and understanding, which I still have to explain, but just, you know, hold on to that for a minute, and how interpretation and language fit in as well. The second part will look at everyday being of the there and the entanglement, what he will call falling prey to, of Dasein, how Dasein falls prey to the they, to the world. 
It considers how idle talk, curiosity, and ambiguity are existential modes of everyday being of the there. These are necessary constituent parts of what makes the there the there and the they, and how these connect with entanglement, understanding, and interpretation. So let's start with part A, or part 1. Here we are focused on the existential constitution of the there. The there. I do not say that neatly. Sorry. The there. The there. I'm like a four-year-old still struggling with my th 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 my there sounds for anyone who's, who grew up learning English. It's a tough one. And anyone who's, you know, English is your second language, I imagine it's tough. Th 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 th. So there being is Dasein. Now, their being as attunement has its ontic correlative as mood or mental state. Dasein doesn't just operate neutrally here. Its exertion is obviously stimulated by something. So in its most rudimentary function, it does so in a mood. It... <laughs> Sorry about the helicopter noise. I'll leave it in just because I want you to know how much I suffer with the helicopters in the city. It, it's it's like such a police state here. It's unreal. Police helicopters just whirring around. Anyway, so Dasein doesn't just operate neutrally. It exists in the world with a certain mood, with a, a, a embracing a kind of mental state. This is its attunement. So with an elevated mood, more possibilities for being are opened up. And so is alleviated the manifest burden itself of being. And here again, I think so much of Spinoza. If you read Spinoza's Ethics, which I've actually covered here, if you want you know, to know pretty much exactly what he says in the Ethics, because there's no way to present it without just essentially reading it. Um, what Spinoza says there, he lays out all the different emotions and discerns those that work to permit action, permit people to exist in the world, to move through the world, to operate in the world, from those that inhibit us from moving in the world and existing in the world. And I think that Heidegger is saying something somewhat similar here in terms of mood and elevated mood and Dasein. There are some dispositions that allow Dasein to move more freely in the world, to embrace a kind of individual will. So in being in a mood, Dasein reveals, reveals its separateness from itself in being oriented towards something as a demonstration of Dasein's ability to bring forth itself. And again, like with Spinoza, when he talks about emotion, he always talks about it as being something from the outside that affects us, and that has some, you know, has plays some part in, in our disposition in the world. Similarly here, in being in a mood, Dasein reveals that it is separate from itself in its being oriented towards something, and having that thing affect it. Mood, though, the very propensity for it is primordial and always plays some part no matter how hard we try to get rid of it. That is, only a counter mood can appease a mood or oppose a mood, which I'm pretty sure Spinoza says the exact same thing, like love to combat hate, for example. Bad moods limit Dasein and therefore reveals that mood, in Heidegger's words, Mood has always already disclosed being in the world as a whole and first makes possible directing oneself toward 
something. The very fact that we can be oriented toward things and moved by them reveals that we intrinsically contain an attachment to things in their possibility to resonate with us in a common world. So for example, in his writing about fear, he says that only something which is the attunement of fearing or fearlessness can discover things at hand in the surrounding world as being threatening. We must first have an innate sense of fear itself. So a little bit more about fear, he writes that it is always a, de a detrimental innerworldly being approaching nearby from a definite region which may remain absent. That thing might never come, but the fear is still there. Now, with this definition, we know very well that there are a number of things that Dasein must already be aware of. That fear emerges from something, comes from something in the world, or is induced in us from a thing in the world that comes from somewhere that we don't know about or that we already have an idea of. And so already, we can see that even in fear, which is, I think, that a, fa a fairly primordial thing, an emotion that we have, reveals that Dasein is very intimately connected with the idea of worlds, of difference, of things that do not resonate with it, and so produces an emotion that beckons us to be wary, to be suspicious, to be concerned, to be a, kind of a heightened state of vigilance. And it reveals our place in and connection with world and things. And this is a kind of attunement, kind of attachment to the world that is in, uh, kind of demonstrated in this singular mood, as in fear in this moment. So to even be able to be fearful reveals that we are attuned to our world and feel a specific unpleasant emotion when an unknown threat enters that world, or, or even a well-known one. But its being there happens you know, un unpredictably, so you couldn't have avoided it in the first place. Hence why we can feel fear for others. Fear is an existential possibility of the essential attunement of Dasein. I can fear for someone if I think something bad will befall them. Now, all of this, mood, specifically like fear, other emotions that signal a connection with the world, all of these are examples of attunement. Now, another, another necessary element of Dasein is understanding, because when Dasein produces something, it reveals itself to have a primordial capacity to understand. To deploy itself means that Dasein employs its understanding, but in doing so, it creates something different from itself in its very possibility. This reveals Dasein's sight of the world in its attachment to it, and so no person can know themselves fully without accounting for others and the world. So what do I mean that understanding is a way by which Dasein can kind of even flee from itself? Well, in its understanding, it is prepared to take on a world, to adapt to a world. And so it is prepared to, in, in doing that, to leave behind its own any primordial desires it might have, will it might have, any drives it might have. And it's, I'm like, I'm using these terms just because I'm limited in my vocabulary. I don't want this to connote like 
or to denote like the Freudian things of, you know, the repressed sexual desire or anything. I'm not talking about anything like that. We're talking about something much more primordial at the core of being itself. So understanding in its attunement to the world is never stagnant. It's always learning, changing, and this is interpretation. So this is what permits us to do more than just repeat the same. When we exist in the world, we do not, we are not just robots that just endlessly produce and reproduce the same things over and over again. Newness always comes into the world, even if, you know, cycles tend to repeat themselves, if history tends to repeat itself. Because when we actually enter the world, we are confronting many different worlds. And it is in these types of collisions of worlds that we open up the possibility for growth, for renewal, for a kind of newness. Now here he considers the role of language or the significance of communication and understanding of a statement. And he provides us one. For example, the hammer is too heavy. That's just the statement he's going to use here. And there's three levels of analysis that we can apply to this statement. So the first level is the pointing out of something, which is just to let that being be seen from themselves. I've pointed out the hammer. I've imbued it, uh, said that th there's a hammer here, like existing in the world. The second level would establish the predicate and subject, where this hammer being the subject is now not just a hammer, it is a hammer that is too heavy as a predicate. This is the quality that is attached to the thing revealed in the statement. The third level is that it establishes communication itself. So in Heidegger's words, this lets others see with us when we communicate. It's not about just demonstrating my own vision of something. It's about bringing someone into that world, into that connection. This is to orient us both toward the same thing. Suddenly, like I'm assuming I'm talking to one person, I tell them the hammer's too heavy. We are both then oriented towards that hammer. So any statement is then, for Heidegger, a pointing out which communicates and defines. I would add that it also orients. So the statement doesn't just come from nowhere. It already maintains itself on the basis of being in the world. It needs a forehaving of something disclosed in general, which it points out in the mode of determining. So we, there is already a kind of secret compliance, kind of a secret affinity between all things that would permit a statement to even exist at all. For it to be possible to bring someone in in a common relationship with a thing because if we were just like purely atomized separated beings we wouldn't be able to have that unified connection to that thing in the world so here okay so far we have understanding we have interpretation and we have the statement the statement is an articulated moment of an unconcentrated interpretation so at a primordial level, interpretation is just creating associations and is somewhat open. It, you know, it can happen between any two things or three or any number of things. 
it is hermeneutical, which is to say that it's up to us to somewhat decide what things mean, what connections to draw, what interpretation we will make of it. That is what he refers to as hermeneutical. And the as, in this case, as a connective tissue, is free. Something is as or like something else. So the, the statement concretizes an interpretation and uh, in objective presence and is therefore apophantic. So the as in this case is rigid. Something is like something else. You are making a definitive statement. That's what it means when you say something is apophantic. Or more precisely, an apophantic statement is when uh, a subject and a predicate perfectly accord with one another. Like saying all crows are black. Like, yes, all crows are black. I don't need to have seen every single crow to know that that is true. So here he introduces a specter that has secretly been allowing statement and interpretation to unfold. And that is discourse, which is the articulation of intelligibility itself and is necessary for interpretation and statement to actually unfold. Discourse is expressed in language. Discourse is what will permit understanding, interpretation, and statement to actually exist, the glue that holds it together, the, the kind of communicative medium that will allow such things, the like luminiferous ether, that ether that, you know, exists, that allows light to travel. You know, that's a similar connection I would draw here. So discourse is the structuring, in Heidegger's words, of the attuned intelligibility of being in the world. Its connection with understanding is apparent in its propensity to listen. We are always in a world and engulfed in it. We listen to it and become one with it, among other worlds. This is why he says we never truly hear noise, but always approximate what we hear to what we know. Like you, and I think that I thought that was such a great observation. Like when you're in the world and you hear something, you never just hear noise, pure noise that has no attachment to anything. That is because you are always trying to make sense of what's going on around you. Any noise you hear, you try to rationalize or fit within like the some kind of paradigm. You categorize it in some way. If there was any sound that came to you that was truly incomprehensible as noise. I don't even know how we, <laughs> we would respond. I mean, it'd be horrifying. It'd be absolutely horrifying. But we know what things mean, which is why even noises that are unknown to us induce fear. Fear is a way of making sense of something in the world, in that we respond to it in a somewhat calculated way, in being oriented in a certain way, fear and then being fearful being scared. So this is why what he means when we say we never really hear noise. So this should reveal how discourse relates to Dasein as being with and being in the world. We're not ever in isolation. You never encounter just like a word or a sound. It's always something more than that. Now, in terms of discourse, he's also just talking about like everyday talk, small talk, as the translation puts it, or like idle talk. 
So there's something mysterious about that existence of idle talk or small talk. Because it is everydayness. You know, how's the weather? You know, some, something silly like that, right? It is everydayness, which, which is good, like Dasein just comfortably is nestled there. But it also implies a lack of connection, a desire to get away from the moment. That is, Dasein finds itself falling prey to, which I haven't explained that term yet, but when Dasein exists in the world, it is kind of just thrown into it, falls prey to it, has to adapt its norms, and just small talk is just going to be one part of it. Not every single moment is Dasein going to try and exert its own like will and destiny, if I can say there's a destiny. It is going to adapt. So this is Dasein being suspended almost in the air. It can't just control where it's going. It has to just, you know, all right, in this moment, I'm just doing my thing. I'm doing, following the rhythms of the world. So Dasein is suspended, and it is still in the world. So small talk is a demonstration of one's knowledge. That is, their ability to easily adapt to, to speak within, to adhere to the rules of the world. This is, so in this way, it's a demonstration of knowledge. It then comes to bear on curiosity as a perpetual seeking without any location, but can be found anywhere. Small talk can happen anywhere, and it does happen everywhere. And when we are unsure of the ground of any given speech or idea, we have entered ambiguity. If, you know, what are we talking about here? If someone doesn't really know what's going on, then they, you know, they are lost in that moment. Now, when, do- uh, sorry, when small talk, curiosity, and ambiguity are taken together, they signify, they comprise, I should say, Dasein's everyday being in the world. They are just ways in which we exist in the world and demonstrate our existence in the world. This is Dasein's entanglement and signals that it's falling prey to the world and losing attachment to itself as Dasein. It gets rid of all of its like desire and drive and everything in favor of adopting the norm, which isn't a bad thing. Heidegger isn't like, oh, you know, kids these days. I mean, maybe like in other texts, he would make that clear, but he's not saying that this is a bad thing. I think if anything, in terms of judgment, he'd be like, yeah, maybe people will, there's some room for people to consider their own mortality. And we'll get into that more later on, consider their own mortality, and then use that to reflect on whether or not they're, what they're doing in the they in the world is actually what they want and they aren't just following the rhythms of life of that world i should say so when he's saying this and like you know you go online or read sources like people are like oh heidegger's trying to like reawaken like the true guiding force of dasein and it's like uh, i don't i don't know if he's trying to be like a cult leader here i think that he's more just like explaining that this is one of the conditions of Dasein itself. It isn't a bad thing. Like we, No one can get around this. That is, we exist in a world and we just we adopt it, and that's just really it. So some consequences of entanglement include temptation to fall prey to the world, tranquility, tranquility, which is unthought acting or busyness, 
and alienation. That is, in always in kind of pursuing the new and therefore ironically fulfilling Dasein's destiny or failing to and being detached from the world, which you can't like ever fully do. It's just like that would just be a pipe dream that you'd be duping yourselves. But yeah, so, you know, we fall prey to this world, or at least Dasein does. And so we have to adopt its norms. Everyday speech is just any world is going to have a kind of everyday norm of speech and of engagement that we adopt and that makes sense to that world. It is what allows us to have a world, kind of basic norms or some basic norms, some basic customs. And we are part of that. And it is within that that we find moments to then express our individual will in terms of like our Daseins wanting to fulfill its own will. And I'm using this term will a lot, and this isn't a term that comes up in the text. I'm just using it for the sake of simplicity. So I hope I'm not leading you like too far astray into like the Nietzsche direction or something, like the will to power. Like I'm not doing that. Please, <laughs> I hope you haven't been confused. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to describe Dasein as being both an individual thing with like an individual set of expectations in a world that places expectations on Dasein. And that puts us here into chapter six, titled Care as the Being of Dasein. So having now talked about so many things, we've talked about a lot, how do we reconcile and grasp Dasein's structural and primordial whole. First, we must acknowledge that the average everydayness of Dasein can thus be determined as entangled, disclosed, throne-projecting being in the world which is concerned with its own most potentiality in its being together with the world and in being with others. So what does that mean? Let me break it down. We must acknowledge that the average everydayness of Dasein can thus be determined as entangled, disclosed. So Dasein is revealed to itself as being in the world and adopting that world's norms. It is entangled with it. It, is, it has fallen prey to the world. And it is thrown projecting being in the world. It has been thrown into this world, which is concerned with its own most potentiality, like what does it want for itself, while also acknowledging its being in the world and being among others. Now, to further characterize this whole, he turns to the idea of anxiety to reveal this totality. And anxiety will allow us to understand how care is central here. We have not lost sight of care that is central to Dasein ontologically and Dasein's connection to the world, reality, and truth. All right, all right. So remember how Dasein turns away from itself as it falls prey to the world? It has to like, okay, I can't just embrace everything I want. I have to now do stuff that the world expects of me in its falling prey to world and doing things in the world. So if we remember that, well, if we apply our understanding of fear, you remember fear as a mode of attunement? Like it is an example of attunement to the world. If we add our understanding of fear to this, then we would say that Dasein is fleeing an innerworldly demon. But that, that can't be true, right? That is, 
it is always going to be trying to flee. It flees both itself and falling prey to the world, and also tries to leave the world in its trying to embrace its own will, to realize its own potentiality of being. So we must think of this fleeing as motivated by anxiety, which makes fear itself possible. So anxiety, unlike fear, can't be located as motivated from a single thing, like a polar bear. If I saw a polar bear, I'd be terrified. Like, anxiety is not brought on by a single thing in the world that, that induces fear within us. Rather, in Heidegger's words, anxiety does not know what it is anxious about. Whereas with fear, we know. We see the thing, it scares us. We don't, we don't fully understand it. We don't know what it's going to do to us but it scares us. So with anxiety, we don't know what we're actually anxious about, which I think is true. I mean, we are often anxious about things that we can't put language to, and that, that makes it worse because we can't understand it. So anxiety does not know even what it is anxious about. The threat then is so near, is so near, that it is oppressive and takes away one's breath, and yet it is nowhere. We can't point to it. We can't identify it. It's just, it's so ephemeral. Anxiety is therefore anxious about the world as such, and therefore being in the world itself. It's almost as though that anxiety is just part of our condition being in the world. We are anxious about just existing to some extent. So when coming from nothing, that is anxiety that just seems to come from nothing, nothing makes it happen, it makes Dasein aware of itself as a being that can project itself. Anxiety reveals in Dasein its being towards its own potentiality of being. Dasein is fully aware that it could be doing something else, that it could be fulfilling its own potentiality of being. And when it is not, it is anxious. When it is aware of its own being in the world and not fulfilling its desires, even though it's not aware of what those are, right? Because anxiety is not about a certain thing we can pinpoint. It is instead fear of the world itself and how that world is limiting us actually fulfilling what we want, even though, even though what, what we want is not apparent to us. Anxiety takes Dasein from its entangled absorption in the world so that it can settle again, potentially in like another world, into another disposition. Anxiety is when you don't feel at home when you're at home. It is uncanny in that way. So I like I use the example of feeling like anxious, the the anxiety that any of us feel on a day-to-day -day basis, where it's just like something we feel but can't make sense of. And so we can only really blame the world. Now, Dasein doesn't express its anxiety in that way because it's not like necessarily corporeal. Corporal? Corporeal. Dasein's anxiety emerges from its being itself and always beyond itself. That is, the being of Dasein means being ahead of one, uh, of oneself already in the world as being together with Interworldly, other interworldly beings. This being fills in the significance of the term care. 
So Dasein is anxious when it is thrown into a world that might not make sense to it, or it is thrown into a world that at any given moment happens to conflict with its own potentiality of being. And so it wants to flee, but it, where does it go? It can't make sense of it. If it is the, it's not like a bear where you're like, oh, I just have to get away from the bear and I'll be fine. It is the world itself that produces anxiety. And it's the nature of things because it demands us turning away from ourselves or Dasein turning away from itself to adopt the they. But this is what we must do. Dasein has to do this. Now, it's important in all of this to consider what reality is. For Heidegger, it's connection to being and its provability in the external world. Reality is ontological. It's like an ontological problem and the connection between reality and care. So reality's connection to being and its provability in the external world. Let, let, let's start with that point. So far, we know that we are in the world. We exist in a world that is in reality. Not like the pants in the closet, like within the world that way, but as a part of the world. And so cognition is a founded mode of access to what is real. Now, this is different from what Kant says, who prioritizes the subject as both a noumenon and phenomenon, not important. For those who know, you'll be like, oh, yeah, not important, though. To prove the existence of the world as phenomenon to human subject with transcendental idealism. So every single world, every single reality is created. It's not like it's just out there to discover. Or as Kant says, like in his at the end of the Critique of Pure Reason, when he says, advocates for transcendental idealism, which pretty much says to be really reductive, like we can't know certain things, like whether or not the universe is infinite, whether God exists, whether there's eternal substance, whatever. He's like, we can't know any of that stuff. So let's focus on what we can know, that we have experience and that we have common experiences of things in the world. And then what can we do with that? So Heidegger says that Kant makes a leap when he locates time within us. So again, back to Kant, the transcendental aesthetic. For Kant, space and time are in our minds. Now our bodies exist in space, but our minds exist in time, which is to say that when we act or our minds operate in time, if we conjure up the image of something in our minds, that image is not taking up space, it's taking up time. It can only come into your mind as time or as a function of time. So Heidegger says that Kant makes a leap when he locates time in us as unchanging to perceive things in the world as changing. Moreover, or rather to explain that, Heidegger's like, Kant is like, oh, we have time within us. That is all time is, is us able to make sense of alterations in the world, in movements. And we imbue a certain understanding upon them that we call time when things move. And they move along a function of time. Now, this is a kind of unchanging process for Kant. Whether or not it is, uh, I think Heidegger's his reading of Kant is... Um, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But anyways, so Heidegger thinks that even this quest for proofs is misguided because Dasein defies such proofs, like there just being a world out there. Because it already is, in its being, what the later proofs first deem necessary to demonstrate for it. 
So there, it, that, that is to say that Dasein is bound up with world. It's not like we're thrown into the world and then we can just observe the world as something separate from us. There is no reality or world separate from us to be proved, which is kind of Kant's critique of Descartes, which is just interesting how Heidegger is repeating much of what Kant already said in his criticisms of Descartes, but whatever. So almost jokingly, he says that this is why idealism is better, and that Kant, in reducing the external world to subjects, was essentially an idealist. He was just using pure reason. So now let us consider how reality is an ontological problem. If reality refers to being, of interworldly beings objectively present in the world, so I'm here among other beings, you, you know, y'all are listening to this, cool, thank you, making it through part five, that's very impressive, I, uh, unless you just put me on to sleep too, in which case that's great, I keep doing it. So, if reality refers to being of innerworldly beings objectively present, we can only understand them ontologically when we clarify innerworldliness. What does it mean for us to be among other beings in the world? The world is always already disclosed to us and to Dasein. Dasein has some innate understanding of it. Because if not, Dasein would not actually come forth within it. And this reveals care is primary, because Dasein harmonizes with the world, enters the world and adopts that world, doesn't turn away from it. So here we must then consider the relationship between reality and care. So same as above, reality is only possible if there is Dasein, as effort to understand being and bring it forth, and therefore reality is dependent upon care. Reality in the as a world, and as Dasein's attachment to world, then means that it constructs or participates in the creation of such worlds. Now we can, which ha depends upon care, like acting in the world, action, existing, being with in the world. Now he considers the question of truth, and he sees it and reviews truth as what shows itself and how it connects with being. So to study truth is necessary to understand being as ontologically primordial. So the traditional concept of truth, he's going to consider a few different things here. He's going to consider the traditional concept of truth, the derivative to the traditional concept of truth, and he wants us to rethink our, our understanding of truth as just like being out there in the world. So the traditional concept of truth, he, to do this, he looks at philosophy from Aristotle to Kant, where he sees truth as an agreement between knowledge and its object. So for example, someone might proclaim, a picture on the wall is crooked without looking at it, and they, they happen to be right. In this example, the truth is not in the agreement between the claim and the thing in the world because it opens up a whole other set of considerations. Like, who cares? Why are you even saying this in the first place? What is crookedness itself? How does it tell us anything of the painting or of the, you know, the painting that's crooked? But this is still a true statement. It is a sign of truth. So the truth that is revealed is the expressive being toward that which has spoken about, is a pointing out of the being, that it reveals the being towards which it is. 
So all that is demonstrated here is being revealing. It is about revealing something. So what is stated shows itself as the very same thing. Confirmation means the being showing itself in its self-sameness. So truth is discovering, not agreement. Revealing Dasein's being in the world. It is bringing something forward. Not about just agreeing a subject and an object, because that implies that they are separate. And that they're, you know, it opens up a whole other litany of problems if you just think that there are these perceiving subjects and these receiving objects out there. Then he turns to the derivative, to the traditional concept. So now he pulls the rug from under us here to say that the traditional concept of truth as agreement is not, was not the first understanding of what truth was. Rather, the Greeks took the derivative form, that is, as discovery, revealing something in the world, not, a court, not trying to find a connection between a subject and an object, between a thing said and thing observed. The Greeks actually thought discovery itself was the first form of truth. And this is clear with their idea of logos as revealing itself, or unconcealing. For them, what Heidegger posits as derivative was primordial. So in his words, being true as discovering is a manner of being of Dasein. It is unconcealing. It unconceals itself and unconceals world. So discovery is what reveals truth as unconcealment. But the act of discovery is a more primordial truth. For something to be discovered, and for discovery to occur, demands a world and worldly things that are disclosed, that are discoverable, that are Dasein, that are their being. And so Dasein is in the truth itself. It is a demonstration of that, of truth. But as discovery, we must acknowledge the Dasein plays the game of concealment as well, as, un as unconcealment does both. Dasein is always already in the truth and untruth. It conceals itself when it falls prey to the they, when it submits to the world. Now he's not, he's not done with the rug pulling here. Then he's going to rip that rug one more time. I think even, maybe a few more times. Where discovery depends on objectively present things a discoverer, and a thing discovered. So in the derivative formula, we've come full circle again and come back to this like subject-object relationship. Discovery is an agreement between an observer and an observed. And that puts here, us here into the third part, or the third consideration, and that is the presupposition of truth. So in his words, constituted by disclosedness, Dasein is essentially in the truth, as he's already said. So truth only exists as Dasein exists. And so we can't claim there are kind of eternal external truths out there until we have proved that Dasein is itself eternal. We should not treat truth as something to be sought or presupposed. Rather, truth is what allows us to presuppose at all as a mode of bringing forth as unconcealing, which is kind of what Dasein does, it brings forth and it unconceals. And so in that way, it is in the truth. And yeah, that'll wrap it up. And then we're going into part two next time, where we'll do three more episodes of that. Uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If there's anything I got wrong, let me, let me know.
tell me what, what I'm getting wrong. Uh, anything I omitted, definitely let me know. And yeah, on that note, I hope you're all well, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.